Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer this morning. Dear gracious, kind Heavenly Father, we again bow before you with grateful hearts this morning as we listen to what you have for us. Thank you for what you have laid on Lester's heart. Just pray you grant him clarity of mind as he presents what you have given him today. Just pray you would open our hearts and help us to receive what you have for us. Just pray this on the name of Jesus. Amen. Greetings to each one of you. I welcome you here. I see a number of visitors. I'm glad you're with us. I invite you to, to worship with us and to hear God's word. That last song we sang, if you took the time to think about what those words were saying, uh, speaks to, to what I want to talk about this morning. I noticed a verse um, that goes along with that song there at the top of the page out of Isaiah 12, and it says, with joy we draw from the well of salvation. So I am speaking again today about joy. This is the second message out of a study I'm doing on the book of 1 John. So I invite you to turn to 1 John. And just to give you a little review or re- refresh your memory or, or fill you in, if, if perhaps you weren't here several weeks ago, my first sermon from this book was entitled, That Your Joy May Be Full. And I take that from the words of John in chapter 1, verse 4, where he says, These things I write unto you, that your joy may be full. He's communicating to the churches, which includes us today, a message that he has that he wants us to know uh, that, that we can have joy as followers of Christ. And that that joy is a joy that lasts. It's not, it's very different from the joy that the world offers to us. But our joy, when he says full, he's talking about being complete, a complete joy. And I found it interesting in in my study in this book to to just turn to some of John's writings, um, especially the book of John, and, and some of what he records Jesus saying, and, and to notice how, how often he referred to the words of Jesus and what Jesus said about joy. In, uh, for example, John seventeen thirteen, John records that, that prayer, that conversation that Jesus had with his heavenly Father, and he says, Now I come to you, speaking to his Father, and these things I speak to the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So John saw that it was Jesus' desire that we would have the same joy that he had with his Father. <clears throat> and that's what he's communicating to us. So my last sermon was primarily looking at uh, how, how can that joy be full. And my three main points were that we walk with God and fellowship with him, that we confess our sin, that we don't argue for our own righteousness, that we don't try to... to um, claim that we are righteous before God, but it's only by confessing our sin depending upon Him. And number three, we find joy when we obey God's commandments. One other thing I want to remind you of is, as we, we try to, I'm trying to kind of interpret this, this book, um, a bit of an a expositional study. Um, and John's writing style is, is so different than Paul or um, Matthew and some of the other writers, especially compared to Paul. 
His, his writing style is more short and to the point, and I find it makes it a little challenging sometimes to really figure out what he's saying because he doesn't expound on it in depth, but he gives these short, uh, profound things that he tells us, and sometimes we have to dig a little bit to find out what is he really saying. So as we turn to the book of First John again today, my title is, What Can Steal Your Joy? I've identified four things here that John is warning us about that can potentially steal that joy from us. My last sermon was primarily out of chapter 1 and and chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, and now I'm looking at the last part of chapter 2 and also chapter 4. John kind of jumps around from, from one subject to another and so, so I'm taking a portion here and a portion there and a few other verses kind of mixed in between there to, to find out what he says here about the things that can steal our joy. <clears throat> so we begin in chapter 2, and I want to read verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. The world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. So the first thing I've identified here that steals our joy is the world. Now, how do we define that world? We, we all live in the world. We've been put here by God. It's his intention that we're here. And I have to think back of a sermon that John preached several weeks ago here where he talked about um, salt and separation. The Bible instructs us to be like salt, and we understand that, that in order for salt to have a preserving effect on something, it needs to be in contact with it. It needs to be present, and, and we're called to be salt in the world. So we need to be here. We need to be in contact with the world. At the same time, we're also called to be separate, to be a separate people, we serve a different king than the world serves. We're of a different kingdom. And so we're put here in the world by God, and yet we're warned that this world can take away our joy. In verse 16, where he says, all that is in the world, and he says, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And those three things speak of um, a longing that we have to, to find satisfaction in ourselves, in our flesh. Satisfaction and confidence. When he talks about the pride of life, it's speaking of, of a confidence that, that we, we strive to have. And lust is simply a longing that, that is um, misdirected. or we're, we're looking to fulfill that longing in the wrong place or in something that we've been told we can't have. <clears throat> so the world is offering us something. This world we live in offers us something. This is easy to understand if you pay some attention to, to commercials, to advertisements, and how that, that companies um, try to get you to buy their product or try to make their product appealing to you. They use the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. To make their product appeal to you. 
The world is offering us something, and we also find that, that in our heart, there's a longing for that. There's a longing for that. But we go wrong when we try to fill that longing by what the world is offering. Why, do, why do, does what the world offers not bring us joy? Verse 16 says, it is not of the Father. Just to draw your attention back to, to Genesis chapter, um, I'll read chapter 3, verse 6. And we want to see there how Eve was controlled by all that is in the world. It says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. You notice the three things it says there. She saw that it was good for food, that appealed to the lust of her flesh. It was pleasant to the eyes. It appealed to the lust of her eyes. And it was desirable to make her wise. It appealed to the pride of life. She longed for that. She longed for something God said she shouldn't take. She attempted to fill that longing by what Satan was offering to her. It would make her wise. She would, perhaps she was thought of, of how her husband would admire her for all that wisdom. Or perhaps she thought of how she could be like God and even as wise as God and in a sense over him. Self-confidence, pride. What Satan was offering to her appealed to what John says, all that is in the world. But verse 17 tells us that this lust of the world is passing away. But it's only he who does the will of God that abides forever. So the world can steal our joy because it offers us something that doesn't last. It offers us a replacement for what only God can give us. I've heard this explained already as, as there's a, a longing in our hearts for eternity or for, for godliness, for what only God can give us. These, these longings that we find that, that are good in a sense, they're put there by God, but the problem we run into is when we attempt to, or when we give in to the world and allow the world to attempt to fill those longings instead of looking to God. It's a longing for eternity. For what lasts. The temporary things of this world will not satisfy it. Uh, just to jump to one more verse back in chapter 5, verse 19, that speaks to this the fact that the world cannot bring us joy. It says, We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Or I think the, the old King James says, Lieth in wickedness. But I like that explanation there, under the sway of the wicked one, or under the control of the wicked one. The whole world is controlled by him. And these temporary things of the world can never bring us lasting joy. The world only brings us joy as it draws us to Christ. So, so we realize that, that there's a lot of beautiful things in this world, a lot of good things that God has put here for us. He's put us here. Um, to enjoy that, but it's only as they draw us to Christ and as they remind us of Christ that they truly bring us joy. 
The second thing is the Antichrist or the spirit of the Antichrist. In chapter 2, verses 18 through 19. Little children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out from us that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. Who is this Antichrist? Or these, or and these uh, many, many Antichrists that he refers to. I found it interesting, only yesterday as I studied this, did I realize that John is the only one, the only writer in the scripture who refers to the Antichrist, or who uses that term, I should say. Not the only one who refers to him, but only one that uses that word Antichrist. It's found four times here in 1 John, as well as once in 2 John. But it is alluded to numerous times in the scripture, um, in Daniel in particular, he talks about, in his prophecy, about, uh, just, I'll mention, without turning there, I'll mention a couple of the terms that he uses that I believe refer to the Antichrist. He speaks of a little horn that rises up, a king of fierce countenance, a prince that shall come. And then also in Second Thessalonians, it also refers to this Antichrist. Now turn there and just read a couple verses out of there, Second. Thessalonians chapter 2, verse uh, 3 says, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things, and now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time? For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders." And I'll stop there. So it, it does seem to be indicating or speaking of, alluding to this man who John refers to as the Antichrist. But then he also says there are many Antichrists which have come, which we know, and by this we know that it's the last hour. So we can expect that we can see that Antichrist, those Antichrists, that spirit of the Antichrist at work among us today as well. How does this steal our joy? We might think of the Antichrist um, in too much as, as a opposite of God instead of a replacement for God or instead of, instead of Christ, we may view him as an opposite to Christ. And I'll explain what I mean by that. Uh, we can tend to get the picture of the Antichrist as being uh, supremely evil because God is supremely good. We may think of him as always lying because God always speaks the truth. As a mean, ugly, and repulsive personality because God is loving, kind, and, and someone we want to be with. But I think we should think of him 
a little more as one who comes in an attempt to replace God instead of God. It's more likely that he is an angel of light, an attractive, smooth talker, sometimes truthful, but a deceiver, and his intent is to lead us away from the truth. Now, I want to continue reading in verses 20 through 23 here, 1 John 2. Here John gives us some reassurance as we think about this Antichrist coming or this this spirit of the Antichrist even being present here with us today and seeking to deceive us. He tells us this, But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Here he reassures us that the Father has revealed the truth to us through his Spirit and through his Son. He's referring to the Spirit when he says, You have an anointing from the Holy One. And what he means by you know all things, doesn't he's not, I don't believe, telling us that we don't lack any knowledge. We know we don't know everything. Only God knows everything. But a better way to interpret that is that you all know the truth. And that's how some other translations phrase or paraphrase that. You all know the truth because you have the Spirit in you. So we don't need to be too concerned about this Antichrist if we know Christ, if we know the real Christ. He reveals to us through the Holy Spirit and through his Son what is true. The Antichrist's intent is to lead us away from truth. We have the assurance here that we do know what is true, and God does want to reveal that to us, continue to reveal it to us as we seek him. Now jumping to chapter 4, verses 1 1 through 3, he gives us some more explanation here of how the Antichrist may steal our joy. He tells us that we need to test every spirit because the spirit of the Antichrist is present today. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. <clears throat> we need to learn how to put the spirits to the test to determine whether they are from God or whether they are from the Antichrist. Now he, speaking here in his his short and concise way, he says the test is whether they, um, by this you know the the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And it may appear like the test is as simple as just asking that teacher that it's not always a person, but whatever it is, Does he believe that Jesus Christ came in the flesh? And if the answer is yes, then we can be assured that he is not from the Antichrist. But I think it's a little more um, complex than that, maybe. 
And, and just, just to expound upon what John is saying, I think the question that we need to ask when we test the Spirit is, uh, does this Spirit present the true Jesus? And does this Spirit believe what Jesus said to be true? Sometimes that's difficult to determine when we hear a new teaching, a different um, preacher. He's bringing something that sounds a little different. It's not always easy to determine right away whether what he is saying, presenting, is truly Jesus and whether or not he truly believes everything that Jesus taught. That's the test we need to put to the spirits. Chapter 2, verse 17, it tells us that he who does the will of God abides forever. And joy will be found where, um, as we abide in God, as we do the will of God. We also know that from history that John here at this time when he wrote this in the latter part of the first century probably, the church was dealing with what was called Gnosticism, a false teaching that was creeping in. And Gnosticism denied the humanity of Jesus. It said that, that it's not possible for God to be in a human form. And so John was possibly directly addressing that when he says that we need to test every spirit by asking, do they confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh? I also see it telling us here that we should be skeptical. It says, do not believe every spirit, but rather test the spirits. Sometimes new things come in. We hear new teachings. We hear something that we haven't really heard before. And sometimes preachers bring this in a way that is very convincing. We're not sure if that is really true or not. My encouragement is that we be skeptical. Sometimes these teachers, they're false teachers, even try and make us feel bad for being skeptical. You should, you should accept this. This is the truth of God. You should accept it now. But I think this passage here gives us a, a right, a responsibility to be skeptical of what we hear, to test it, to take the time and put it to the test. Sometimes with time we realize that that person isn't actually following Christ's teachings isn't actually um, confessing that Jesus Christ is who his word says he is. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. We also find, again, John reassures us in chapter 4 here, as we go on and read 4 through 6. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are of the world, therefore they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. There I see him again just reassuring us. We have the one who is in us is greater than the one who is in the world. We find strength and reassurance in that. As we seek to know the truth, He who knows God hears us. He who knows God follows his word. And we can find reassurance that God, through his spirit, dwells in us. 
and he will lead us into truth. The Antichrist, the spirit of the Antichrist, can steal our joy. But as we follow Christ, we can experience his joy, lasting joy. The third thing is, fear rather than love can steal our joy. Here in chapter 4, verses 16 through 19. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. When it says love is perfected, it means made complete and mature. God's love is perfected in us. As his love is perfected in us, we have boldness in the day of judgment. This fear that he's talking about here is not just any kind of fear. It's not like we can just go through life without ever being afraid of any accident, sickness, disease, anything like that, if God's love is perfect in us. But it's a fear of the day of judgment. Notice he says that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Fear involves torment. The opposite of this fear is a confidence when we stand before God in the day of judgment. This is also different than the fear that we are to have of God, as we know that Scripture tells us we are to fear God. That is a different term, a different type of fear. It's a respect and being in awe of God. This is fear that involves torment that he's talking about here, a fear of God's final judgment. Because God's love dwells in us, and as that love is perfected in us, we don't need to fear judgment. The judgment day does not steal our joy. Knowing the love of God gives us confidence to stand before him. In verse 17 he says, Because as he is, so are we in this world. We are like Jesus in this world. Our identity is completely in him. And we depend upon his love because we know that we do not deserve salvation. We love like he does. As we depend upon his love, we don't need to be afraid in the day of judgment. If that fear is stealing your joy, you need to find the love of Christ and dwell in that love. That love that Though you don't deserve the salvation he brings you, he does want to save you. He has come to save you because of his love. And the fourth thing that I have identified here is idols. We find this in the very last verse of this book. In chapter 5, verse 21, this is somewhat typical of, of John's writing style. He doesn't really end with any kind of conclusion other than this abrupt verse here. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Idolatry will steal our joy. 
is simply something that is worshipped, adored, and honored instead of God. The literal meaning is an image. What we worship and adore will control us. We will yield ourselves to it, whatever it is that we worship. We will become its slave. In the Old Testament times, we read of their problems with idolatry, and often it it involved the, the making of an image, something that they would literally bow down to and worship. In the Old Testament times, God was a being outside of themselves. Um, think of the Mount, Mount Sinai, as the children of Israel were gathered there, and, and they heard thunder, they, they heard and felt that power of God. It was a force outside of themselves. So when they fell into idolatry, they attempted to make some other image that they could bow down to. God tells us in Jeremiah chapter 31, he gives us that promise that there's coming a time when his spirit will dwell within us. And we're in that time now. He says, but this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Another passage is 2 Corinthians 6 verse 16. It shows us there how that now in the New Testament times, God dwells within us. He says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. God dwells in us today. So our temptation to turn to idols is oftentimes a... um, Self-image, an image uh, where we make ourselves, we become an idol. We try to make ourselves God, we worship ourselves. God dwells within us, we are the temple of God. Temptation brought to us is to dethrone the God dwelling in us and worship self instead of Instead, as compared to worshiping a force or a being outside of ourselves. And this idolatry of self is revealed with our obsession with our appearance, with our attempt to control others so that others serve us. In pride, when we exalt ourselves. And in slander, when we put others down in subservience to us. We make ourselves the center of our worship. We make ourselves an idol in place of worshiping God. We cannot find joy in this because joy is only found in Christ. So he warns us, little children, keep yourselves from idols. In Hebrews 12, verse 2, it says that looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Then Jesus himself said to his disciples in John sixteen twenty two, Therefore you now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, 
and your joy no one can take from you. And then he said to his heavenly Father in John 17, I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. The Apostle John heard the words that Jesus spoke, and he wrote this letter to us so that we could have that joy. That joy was the motive for Christ doing what he did in enduring the cross, coming to this world. He wants us to have that joy. And that's the message that the Apostle John here is communicating to us. So take the warnings that he gives. Do not allow these things to steal your joy. The world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Adam and Eve had their joy taken from them because they believed that their longings could be met by what Satan offered to them rather than believing that God's commands were good for them. The spirit of the Antichrist will lead you away from the truth and from joy. By knowing God and by the indwelling of his spirit in our hearts, we have the truth and we can avoid deception and overcome and endure to the end and have the joy that no one can take away. The fear of judgment, we understand that because of God's perfect love, all the judgment we ever deserved was poured out on Jesus Christ on the cross. If we still live in fear of judgment, it is because we have not accepted and immersed ourselves in his love. And idols that will take the place of God in our lives, and only God can give us true lasting joy. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Righteous Heavenly Father, we thank you for your written word, how we can open it, we can find refreshment and strength and courage by the message that you have for us. And we're reminded this morning of these things that can steal our joy. We need to be aware, constantly seeking for you to perfect your love in us and allow you to draw us closer and closer to you. And we look forward to the day when we can be in eternity with you, where all our longings and our our desires uh, can be in you and met in you, and we can truly have the lasting joy that this world cannot give us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.